Hello and welcome to episode 26. Hopefully you have been enjoying this podcast and all of the in-depth looks at films from the past and the present. Some of these movies are well-loved and hailed as the stuff of legend, while others may have flown under the radar when they first came out and deserve a revisit. Either way, if you have listened to this show before, then chances are you have heard me open the show with this quote from actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. In today's episode, we're celebrating two significant anniversaries, the 80th of Universal Studios' The Wolfman, starring Claude Rains as Sir John Talbot, Ralph Bellamy as Colonel Montford, Bela Lugosi as Bela, Evelyn Ankers as Gwen Conliffe, and of course Lon Chaney as the titular Wolfman. And we'll also talk about the 40th anniversary of the release of 1981's cult classic, an American Werewolf in London, starring David Naughton, Jenny Agata, and Griffin Dunn. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Well, I hope you've got your wolfsbane and silver-tipped sticks, because we're looking back at two highlights of the werewolf subgenre that were first released many full moons ago. For your spoiler-free plot setup of 1941's The Wolfman, directed by George Wagner, we have Larry Talbot. He arrives home in Wales for the first time in 18 years. He is driven to a pretty swanky mansion. He walks up to the front door where he is greeted by his father. We get some expository dialogue that reveals that that this visit is planned and expected. It turns out that Larry's older brother John has recently died in a hunting accident. His father says to him, The oldest son is usually groomed to inherit everything. Assume the responsibilities as the next in the family line, while in these situations, the youngest son tends to resent the position he is in as the other son and leaves home just as you did. The father says in a tone of voice that's sort of a hybrid of sadness and bitterness and regret, he says, isn't it a sad commentary on the two of us that you only came home once your brother died? But the father goes on to accept some of the blame, saying that the Talbot men have always been brought up to be stiff-necked and undemonstrative. He offers his hand and says, let's do away with the reserve between us. Larry happily shakes. So it's a pretty promising opening. They go up to the attic, which is now an observatory, and that is where Larry is putting the finishing touches on this huge-ass telescope. This thing is a monster. His father is duly impressed. We then get some point-of-view shots as Larry looks through the telescope to scan the streets and neighbors' windows outside. And you know, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking to myself, Alfred Hitchcock, he probably took a page out of this playbook for Rear Window, especially when Larry stops scanning and zeroes in on the sight of a woman across the way. She's at her window. She doesn't notice him, but violin music begins, and you know that means that she's going to be his eventual romantic interest. He smiles, and he tilts the telescope down, and we see that she's on the floor above an antique store. So he goes across the street, walks in, saying that he's looking for earrings, says that he's looking for something half-moon-shaped, with golden spangles. Not too much of foreshadowing, is it? Asking for half-moon-shaped? And she's there like, oh, sorry, we don't have anything like that. And he says, oh, yeah, you do, remember? On your dressing table, up in your room. Would you mind getting them for me? Here's where I would peg this dude as a stalker and a creep, but all she says is, well, they're not for sale. And he comes back with, well, I can't say that I blame you. They look so well on you. She wises up, and she says, I'll go get my father. And he says, oh, no, 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 that's not necessary. He proceeds to ask to look at some canes instead. She shows him one that has a silver wolf on the tip with a star on it, and she says it's a rare piece that shows a wolf and a pentagram, the sign of the werewolf. The werewolf sees the pentagram in the palm of his next victim's hand, but he doesn't know what a werewolf is, so she explains the concept. He buys the cane, and she says, have you seen me before? And he says, let's go for a walk tonight and talk it over. She says no. He says, how about eight? She says no. 
They see fortune tellers out the door, riding past outside. She says, oh yeah, they come every fall. He repeats, I'll be here at eight. And she says no. He says, okay, see you then. Sure enough, eight o'clock rolls around, and he does indeed show up. He meets her, it's appropriately foggy outside, and she brings a friend with her, Jenny Williams. The merry trio go to get their fortunes told, and that's where they meet Bela, who tells Jenny to cut the cards. He and Gwen go for a walk in the fog, where she tells him that she's actually engaged to be married soon. Meanwhile, back to Bela, who sees something very troubling. Jenny, she asks, when will I be married? And he asks to see her hand. Her left hand shows her past, her right hand shows her future. The pentagram shows up on the right hand, but he can't tell her anything tonight. All he says is, come back tomorrow, go away, go quickly. And she panics, yes, yes, I'm going, and she gets the hell out of Dodge. There's a wolf that howls. A horse goes ape, and now I'm stopping there. And we're going to pivot towards an American werewolf in London, which came out in 1981, 40 years later. Hiking on a road in northern England, we meet two American college students, David and Jack. These two friends arrive at a small village, and they enter the local pub. There's light-hatted, irreverent humor at first, but then Jack makes the mistake of inquiring about this shrine with candles and a pentacle. Everyone in the pub falls silent, and hostilities become more and more evident. David and Jack take this as their cue to exit, but not before the patrons tell them, stay in the road outside, do not wander into the moors. And we can see where this is going, right? So there they are, following everyone's advice and keeping to the road when, lo, it begins to rain and the fog gets thicker. This causes them to drift off the road and find themselves a little confused about where they are. And then it happens. They hear a sound, a strange sound, an unfamiliar sound. It's the sound of an animal baying out in the fog. Jack wants to go back to the village, but there's this growling that's getting closer until they finally see this pretty big animal circling them. They try to run off in the opposite direction, only for David to trip and fall. Jack helps him up, but he is then brutally and fatally attacked by this large wolf. David turns back when he hears Jack screaming. He finds Jack's body ripped apart and is himself attacked by the wolf, which bites and scratches him on his face and his shoulder. Gunshots are heard. It's the villagers who save him and kill the werewolf. But right before he loses consciousness, David looks on the ground next to him and sees not a wolf, but the bloodied body of a naked man. So with that happy little pick-me-up, now is the time to introduce this episode's special guest. I am really excited for this. I held off on the usual sampling of dialogue because he will do the honors. He's from New Zealand. His name is Tommy Goodwin. He is one half of the podcast Rewatch, Relive, Repeat, or R3. And he is here to join me to talk about both films. He's also going to help out with this episode's serving of quotable dialogue to kick things off. This one from The Wolfman. Tommy, welcome to the show, and please, you do the honors. Even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. I love the way you said that. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> I love the way you said that. That's good. Tommy, it is great to have you on Silver Screen. I thank you for taking the time out of your day, especially given the time difference that you and I have between each other. You're 15 hours ahead. Is that right? I think we worked out it was 14 at the moment because of uh, daylight savings. That's right. That's right. Well, still 14. That's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty big shakes. Yeah. Right now yeah. for me, it's Friday at 5.17 PM. So it's 
10, 17 a.m. on Saturday yeah, for you. Right. Saturday morning, yeah. That's crazy when you think about it. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> but it's cool, though. It's cool. All right. So, yes, we're talking about 1941's The Wolfman celebrating its 80th anniversary and 1981's An American Werewolf in London, which is celebrating its 40th. So let's talk about The Wolfman first. The one thing that I wanted to bring up first was this. After the opening credits end, you have the close-up. A lot of movies back in the day used to begin like this. They have a close-up of the inside pages of a book, and it offers yeah. you a textbook definition of the word... I want to make sure I pronounce it correctly. <laughs> Lyca- <laughs> lycanthropy. The word lycanthropy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it uses the word victim in that opening definition, which I thought was interesting, referring to the werewolf itself as a victim. And I was curious as to what your thoughts were on that, because it's similar to the old vampire law, where you are bitten by a vampire against your will, you become a vampire yourself against your will. You know, Frankenstein's creature did not ask to be created. I don't know. I didn't know what your thoughts might be on how what we tend to regard as the quote unquote classic monsters in the movies how so many of them are depicted as the hapless victims. Yeah, yeah, they are. And and we really see that with Larry Talbot as he's coming to grips with the fact that he's become a werewolf, you know, he's he's tormented by it. So he clearly is a victim, right? But they're also they're also a monster. So, you know, he's a werewolf and he he goes out on a full moon and attacks. And so, but that's not what he wants to do, right? It's against his will. It's sort of like a, a creature or monster inside of him. And we see that struggle in him as, as he's, he's just really battling with it, which, uh, which I really liked. And I thought that was really well captured. Yeah, I would agree with that. There was definitely a sense of vulnerability that Lon Chaney Jr. worked into his performance as Larry Talbot. This wasn't a stock villain like Freddy Krueger or Jason. This wasn't someone with no emotion. This wasn't Michael Myers with a blind, pale, emotionless face. This is a human being who's got a whole backstory. He just lost his brother in a hunting accident that was established in the very beginning. His father reminds him how the two of them had never been particularly close. And it takes the brother's death to bring him back home after 18 years. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. he meets the quote unquote, the girl and <laughs> romance blossoms and a couple of dated and dubious ways. But like you said, this is not what he asked for. This is no. not what he wants to do. It's against his will. Yeah, it's happening to him. And, and we see that even after uh, his first transformation, the first night and uh, the next morning, he's just, you know, he's so ashamed and, and, and frightened. Like he's so scared of what he's going to become, which is, as you said, Lon Chaney Jr. portrayed that so well. And I read that the original idea for the Wolfman is it was going to be left ambiguous as to whether or not he was actually becoming a physical wolfman or whether it was all in his head and it was just a psychological thing. And I think a lot of those elements were left in as far as, as how much it tormented the character, which is really, really fascinating. There's definitely a lot more psychology worked into the script in that sense than you have in some of the other universal studio era films. I mean, as fantastic as, and as classic as something like Dracula may be, You don't have a background story to him. You don't know who bit him and caused him to become a vampire. With Talbot, what you have is really the beginning, the middle, and the tragic end, the unfortunate demise. Yeah, you do. And 
it's um i haven't i haven't myself seen dracula the the original but when you were talking about the 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 quote-unquote monster being the victim it reminded me of an interview with a vampire and and when uh, i'm not sure if you've seen an interview with a vampire uh, when when brad pitt's character really starts to resent lestat for changing him and and we know we you know we see is it louis I think is his character's name. He's a victim. Brad Pitt's character is a victim of Lestat, right? You know, he was changed against his will. And it, it kind of, when you were talking about that, it kind of reminded me, I know we're not talking about that movie, we're talking about the Wolfman, but it's that same sort of theme, right? Is that, yeah, that, that word, the victim, they've become a monster against their will. Yeah, you definitely have that woven throughout Interview with the Vampire too. And I have not seen Interview with the Vampire in a really long time. So yeah. my memories of it are a bit hazy, but what I do remember from it, what you're saying makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I do that often. Is I'll, I'll compare themes to another movie that I know probably. I mean, I've seen The Wolfman a few times now for for the podcast. But yeah, I'll, I always end up comparing to to other things. So sorry if I go off on about another movie. No, no, no. Don't apologize. That's what I. <laughs> that's what I love. That's no. That's the kind of convers. These are the kind yeah. of conversations I love to have. Is to you know draw all these parallels and to see. Okay, what are some recurring themes within the genre and it i mean you think about it and so many of these movies both then and now where the main character is the archetypal quote-unquote villain or murderer or monster or what have you they all seem to go back to that question of what exactly is it that makes a monster is it the soulless killing machine is it the zombie that just walks around looking for the instant gratification of, you know, human flesh. Is it a vampire seeking blood? Is it a wolfman who just attacks at random? What is that unifying link? Like what makes a monster? That's the kind of thing. Those, those are the kinds of questions that, that I like to think about with these kinds of movies, because so much of it can apply to the world we live in. Yeah, if you know what I mean, you know, especially I mean, especially when you're talking about zombies and wanting that instant gratification, I'm like that. That just sums up uh, where where the world is now. Just everything's instant. Is instant gratification. And I've seen a I've seen a clip which is actually quite clever. Of oh no, what oh, it's in it's in it's in a movie uh, actually that I really like. It's a zombie movie, uh, The Dead Don't Die, and it shows the zombies uh, resorting back to what they used to. So we've got different six sections of zombies and uh the younger zombies are all have their phones in their hand because they're still acting like that's and and it just looks like people <laughs> that's you like you remove the zombie element and that's where we are now you know it's just these um mindless creatures moving around staring at the screen in their hand it's so funny it's um but yeah it really makes you think of how much difference there is between real humans and these monsters <laughs> No, it does make sense because there is truth in that. I think about the number of times people, you see people walking down the street or people will be, you know, not using the crosswalk or not watching their kids in the playground because they're not looking up from their screens. And, you know, I've seen memes and single panel comics similar to what you just described, all saying the zombie apocalypse, you know, the Apple iPhone, that kind of thing. It's already here. Yeah, we're already living it. As far as the movie itself goes, The Wolfman, do you remember the first time you saw it? Yeah, I do remember the first time I saw it. It was last month <laughs> when uh, oh. it was just after you asked me to, uh, to be a guest and, uh, and, and cover this movie because I had seen uh, American Will- an American Werewolf in London. 
but I hadn't seen The Wolfman. So I worked out uh, last night that it is the third. I know your uh, your quote uh, from Lauren Bacall. Yes. Um, that is not an old movie if you haven't seen it, but it is, it's the third oldest movie that I've seen. I worked out because uh, I have seen Wizard of Oz. Uh, I've yep. seen the original King Kong from 1933. Yep. And I've seen a couple of scenes from the Maltese Falcon, which came out the same year as the Wolfman, uh, but before. Uh, and now I've seen the Wolfman. So, yes, yeah, that's the, the third oldest film that I've seen in completely, which is uh, which is fantastic. But I loved it. It was so cool. I really like I really like the the sets like on a soundstage and everything like that is like, I mean, modern films, you get a lot more depth uh, in the imagery with like with CGI and, 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 and everything like that. But these sets and everything like that, that they build on these sound stages, they're just, they're just so beautiful. I mean, we, we, I mean, we do still get that these days, but I don't know what I'm looking at these days, whether it's real, whether it's CG, I, I can't tell the difference, but um but you know that you know there were people that built these these sets in these locations and they just bring such an atmosphere which is really cool like when they bring in the fog in the forest scenes it's it's just fantastic yeah whenever the sets or whenever whenever any of the effects whenever they're practical you know like you say when they're not cgi when they're real when they're the real deal when they're authentic like that Nothing really beats that. So much today is CGI, which sometimes can look really good if it's done right. But I think that's why whenever a movie made today that does not use CGI, they tend to build that up. I mean, they tend to make sure that people know, oh, we didn't make this movie using CGI. We made this movie using nothing but practical effects. This is a real set that was physically built. This is not digitally enhanced. Whereas back then it was the norm. Now it's the exception. Yeah, and it's almost a badge of honor now that that to use practical effects. Like it just seems like a it, it's easy just to to run CGI or or you know to 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 just fake it in post and we'll just digitally put it in. You you'll read that um, what I what I quite like about the Force Awakens was that they moved to more physical locations and practical effects that happened on on set and that sort of thing and and it's become a bit of a badge of honor it's like that they're proud that they did it practically as opposed to just digitally it's almost become that computer generation i mean that that's easy that's easy to do it we can um you know that that technology has come so far but to still be able to do it practically on set and have it look amazing on film that's that's something that i find a lot of filmmakers are really proud of these days in this in this day and age anyway well, I think a lot of people in the film industry would regard it as more of a pure form of filmmaking, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, it's genuine, right? It's a lot more authentic because it's it's happening, right? Um, there's there's a really cool. I keep seeing it come up on social media. It's it's not. Um, I believe you've seen 1917. The the. Oh yes. Yeah. Saw it in the theaters twice. Yeah, that's right. You saw it in theaters. I'm so jealous of that. As, as it's showing that um, that scene of I I I've seen it once I don't remember the characters' names but it's got the the soldier running a, across um, where the other soldiers are charging ahead behind him and he's trying to stop them from doing it because it's yeah. a, 
going to end disastrously but how they did it and like the explosions just going off and you know it's all real it's just it takes a lot more skill and a lot more planning to protect everyone on set if you're going to be doing explosions and everything practically as opposed to just digitally so cool and when it's practical like that there's so much more i would imagine so much more forethought that would have to go into it in terms of just choreographing it down to the very second you know, yeah. I mean, that scene in 1917, perfect example. If he's running across the field and if one of the explosives went off three seconds too soon or three seconds too late, everybody back to your places and reset yeah. the whole thing. Make sure there are no injuries. Make sure that yeah, nothing exactly. is, you know, well, damaged. The, and then that's the worst case scenario. Someone loses a leg because they stepped in the wrong spot. You know, it's um, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 terrifying to think of. But I imagine there, there are there are a lot um safer with it these days i i recently this is another tangent i recently watched the twilight zone movie for the first time okay okay and uh, i read about the the helicopter accident that happened yes and uh you know that's just a, a classic case of of how things could go terribly wrong so yeah it requires so much more planning to to pull off these things and yeah it's it's such a such a skill that whole situation, I remember somewhat the publicity surrounding that because Twilight Zone, the movie, came out in 83, two years after an American Werewolf from London. Same director, yep. John Landis and Vic Morrow. Yeah, there was a segment where he was supposed to be a Vietnam veteran, I think it was. And so John Landis got two Vietnamese children to play these roles. There were so many layers to the whole situation. And the end of it all is the fact that this horrific accident occurred with the helicopter blades and it killed all three of them but yeah. then once the trial began it was all you know negligence and that kind of thing the fact that they were illegally hired they weren't i forget the details i don't know if it's the fact that they were that they didn't go through the screen actors guild which is the acting union here something like that so he got a reprimand from an official reprimand from the directors guild of america and it's just amazing to me that he was able to continue working in hollywood after that happening of course this yeah. segment didn't make it into the final cut of the film like they didn't recast the roles i mean or redo it they no just... they didn't reshoot it yeah yeah, yeah that's pretty was... horrific yeah i read about that i couldn't believe it i'd never heard of that before until until um i was just yeah scrolling through the trivia on the movie as i was watching it which which is a bad habit of mine yeah oh it's not a bad uh, habit I, nothing bad about it <laughs> no well i no i do i often do it while i'm watching it which also is is just just distracts me from the movie like oh I'm, I see what you're saying. yeah yeah I, I try and do better do better these days but uh yeah i wasn't sure i couldn't remember who directed that that segment whether it was john landis or not um because i know there were there were four is it three or four segments in that movie which had three different directors there were in the final cut, and I could be wrong, but I think the final cut had three. Yeah, because I know there was Joe Dante, uh, Dante. Yes, there was the segment with the senior citizens playing Kick the Can. Yeah. And then there was the segment with the boy who was able to wish for something to come true to happen. Yeah. And then, that's of course, right. the guy in the airplane with the gremlin out in the wing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's um, yeah, it was a really entertaining watch. I've not seen any of the of the TV series. It's my that's the only in, the only foray I've had into the Twilight Zone. I haven't even seen any of the new stuff from Jordan Peele. But uh, yeah, it was very cool. I'm glad I watched it. 
As far as an American werewolf in London goes, uh, there yeah, are so, a lot so, of... Sorry, sorry that that took us to John Landis, which is the other film. <laughs> no, that's... Hey, it's John Landis. He's the director, so... Yeah. It was a natural segue, honestly. One thing we didn't talk about, and I don't know if it's... Is, is that we haven't talked about the the transformation in... Uh, well, we haven't talked about the transformation in either movie, but definitely in American Werewolf in London, the practical effects that went into that were Let's do it. Yes. phenomenal. That yeah. whole transformation scene, I, that is the scene that got Rick Baker his Oscar. Yeah, absolutely. That it's, was just um, crazy. I mean, well, he looked like he was in pain. Yeah, like that was physical so well, pain. So well acted by David Norton. But um, I was just, I was literally just watching uh, a wee, a wee featurette on YouTube about this before coming on here. And it was with John Landis and they had him um, explaining what he did. And he said, I, I made Rick Baker's job as hard as possible because I told him, this is what we're going to do. We're not cutting away. There's going to be no cutaways. It's got to have an all on, on screen and in full light, which is just phenomenal. Like you can't, can't hide anything in the darkness it's all in a well-lit room and it's just like it's not one it's not one continuous shot but it all happens on screen it's it's fantastic and you think about the wolfman where he where Lon Chaney Jr. sits down pulls up his pant legs and he sees the hair on his legs and on his feet come a long way (laughs) yeah they've (laughs) come a uh, long way I mean that was 40 years between the two that was still pretty impressive. That was still pretty impressive of, you know, the little techniques that they used to achieve it in 1941. But yeah, there's, there's, it's got nothing on 40 years later, 1981 with American werewolf in London. That was incredible. The skull, the face and everything changing shape right before your eyes is just, and like, you know, the, the spine protruding from his back and yeah. Uh, the contortions and, yeah the, the fingers extending and then curling and then the yeah. close-up of his face you see the eyes wide open the bloodshot the veins and you see the sweat pouring down his forehead and he's screaming and unbelievable and then his face transforms you see the snout forming <laughs> oh, i know it's, you're watching uh, this and you're thinking to yourself my god who thinks this stuff up? yeah yeah absolutely they uh rick baker said they sh- they filmed that seen over the course of a whole week but they probably only filmed for about half an hour of that and the rest was all just setting it up ready to go applying makeup to david norton and yeah they um uh, they had david norton saying um he shared a an anecdote when he met rick baker and he, he said oh, are you going to be playing david and he said yep Oh, that's that's me. And he goes, oh, I feel really bad for you. And he goes, oh no, this is a really good opportunity for me. Um, and he goes, no, you're gonna hate it. <laughs> and just <laughs> just the the makeup and everything that they had to go through to achieve what they what we got on screen. But wow, what uh, what an accomplishment though. What what a what a what a massive leap for for visual effects and makeup effects. Well, I remember reading that it took about 10 hours to put the makeup on him. Yeah. He would have to sit in the makeup chair and sometimes he would have to maybe raise an arm for, to cast his arm or sometimes he would have to stand or sit a certain way. He couldn't fall asleep. He couldn't yeah. eat. I have no idea how he was able to go to the bathroom. 10 hours is a, is a long time. That's a long time to be sitting doing nothing. Like I've heard of I've heard of actors that won't return to a film franchise as a particular character because of like you know they had to spend three hours in the makeup chair every morning, but ten hours, 
every day for a week. That was he, he said, yeah, it was 10 hours and they did it for six days. So that's 60 hours just sitting there having makeup applied to you. I can't imagine. He'd show up at 4.30 a.m. And by the time they were done, then they'd be able to film for a few hours and then take it off. And then, yeah. which was like a couple of hours in and of itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Linda Blair from The Exorcist, when she came back for The Exorcist 2, that was one of the things that she put into her contract. Yeah. She said, if I'm coming back and if I'm playing the same character, I'm not going through that whole makeup ordeal again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm very, very much a Marvel film fanatic. So the, the two examples I can think of uh, was Alan Cummings in X-Men 2 when he played Nightcrawler. I don't know if you're familiar with that film, um, but he wouldn't come back to do that again because of the makeup process. And Hugo Weaving in Captain America, the first Avenger. So he, um, with Red Skull, he was not a big fan of uh, of the makeup process that he had to go through. I'd imagine that sometimes the paycheck might make it a little bit better and sometimes it just might not, sometimes it might just might not be enough. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing is that they, they're getting paid a lot of money to, to sit in that chair. I mean, possibly not. Um, David Norton back in 1981 probably wasn't getting played tens of millions of dollars. No, at that point in time, he was most famous for his Dr. Pepper commercials. So yeah, I don't think he had a lot of clout just yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, it's, it's interesting. I was reading the, um, I was, I was reading the trivia and, and found out that John Landis had quite liked him in the Dr. Pepper commercials. And with the quote, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? One of my favorite lines from Short Circuit, um, the movie, which I, we don't have Dr. Pepper here. Well, we do, but it's imported and it's not like a, it's not like Coca-Cola. It's not like a main, hmm. um, a product that's on in every fridge and every store you go to. But yeah, so I wasn't familiar with the ad campaign. So I was quite happy that those two things coincided, that I was able to make that connection quite well. I tried Dr. Pepper as a kid. I was never, I, I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I've tried it once myself, and yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a Coca-Cola guy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I tried it, and I know there are some parts of the country that call it Mr. Pibb instead of Dr. Oh, really? Pepper. Oh, really? But I mean, here in Massachusetts, it's Dr. Pepper, but yeah, uh, yeah whatever you want to call it, I just the taste never was one that I went for. Yeah, yeah. All due respect to David Norton. Yeah, yeah. Well, they I've seen the commercials him, they, on YouTube. They dropped him from um, Dr. Pepper after this film. Um, because of all the nudity yeah so he was no longer an ambassador for um for dr piffer which is very unfortunate i guess the moral of the story is don't get nude with lions in an enclosed space and yeah you won't lose your endorsement (laughs) no that's right (laughs) oh no an american werewolf in london was a film that if we're speaking about something like the twilight zone tragedy on set it, american werewolf in london has its own backstories that are disturbing griffin dunn for example who played his friend who played uh jack uh, jack yeah uh he i mean his in real life his sister was also an actress she was the oldest daughter in the first poltergeist movie uh really i did not know that they were related brother and sister Dom- dominique dunn dominique dunn yeah yeah dominique dunn was his I don't know who, which one was older, which one was younger. And she had died. I don't know if you heard this story. Uh, she was yeah. killed by an abusive ex-boyfriend. She was strangled and she fell into a coma and they ended up taking her off life support. That was that was one year after An American Werewolf in London. Not only that, but David Naughton, he went on to co-star in a TV sitcom with Pam Dauber from Mork and Mindy. I don't know if 
Mork and Mindy, the sitcom yeah, with Robin yeah, Williams. I'm, I'm aware of Mork and Mindy, but I haven't seen it. I'm not sure of um of the co-star. Yeah, Pam Dabba was she was the she was the she was the girlfriend in the show. She went on to do another sitcom with David Naughton, and it was called My Sister Sam. And on the show, you're familiar with this one. I can t- <laughs> yeah, the reaction uh, face. Rebecca, yeah. Rebecca Schaefer. Rebecca Schaefer. And she was killed by an obsessed fan shortly after the show went off the air. So you have these horrific associations with this movie, but then you take a look at the cult classic that it has become. And it's almost like, I don't know, it's the purpose of, you know, the art of film, I guess you could say, or actually any form of art, whether we're talking music, whether we're talking film, whether we're talking television, photography, sculpture, you know, how art can sometimes be cathartic for so much of this kind of thing. And uh, I mean, American Werewolf in London, of course, came up before any of that. But a lot of his follow-up projects, David Naughton, he did a movie where he played a washed-up horror movie actor who was at a convention. Did you see this one? I haven't, no, but that that sounds, um, yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. And there's a crazed fan who pulls a gun on him and shoots. And I'm watching this movie. And the, the movie came out only about maybe 2007, 2008. So relatively speaking, not that long ago certainly removed from the murder of Rebecca Schaefer. And I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself, he was okay with doing that. It's not like they crossed paths for like one guest appearance on an episode or something. The two of them worked together. They were both regulars on the show for, you know, over two years. So it surprised me at first, but then you think about it and it's like, maybe that's the kind of thing that some people feel the need to, to do to work it through their system. I don't know. Yeah. I mean that, and that's, that's a lot later. I mean, that's, 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 quite a while after that incident happened so uh if if that was a way for him to work through it man that, that must have been really hard to uh be holding on to all that time too i mean one of the one of the i hate to say often often a lot of good things come from these horrible tragedies is that a lot of uh like the anti-stalking laws and stuff like that came into into effect after rebecca schaefer um because there wasn't there wasn't a lot to stop people from, you know, becoming these crazed, obsessed people and having access to personal information and, and, and all sorts of things. It was, it was terrible. It's the true crime, the true crime person in me that's aware of Dominic Dunn and, and Rebecca Schaefer. Yeah. <laughs> that's horrific. I mean, what a, from what I heard, what a, what a star she could have been, you know, I heard that, you know, she was just going from strength to strength. She was on the rise, Rebecca Schaefer, and then just, just have that all taken away. She was all lined up to play Al Pacino's daughter in The Godfather Three. The That's day she was, was killed, she was she was waiting for the script. Francis Ford Coppola with with the script exactly. She yeah. thought it was them delivering the script at the door. That's why she answered it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's tragic. But back in the eighties, when blood and gore and those kinds of movies were really the in thing, there was a documentary made called Terror in the Isles. Donald Pleasance, who was Dr. Loomis in the Halloween movies, and Nancy Allen, who was in Carrie, the two of them co-hosted this documentary. It included clips from every horror movie that you can imagine, from as far back as the silent days to what was then present day and age of the mid-1980s. And it included clips from both The Wolfman and An American Werewolf in London. And Donald Pleasance at one point turns to the camera and he says, and this is where I'm going with this, he says... Why is it that people will invent artificial terrors? What is it about people who pay their money to go see artificial terrors when there is already so much real violence in the world? 
And then he quoted Stephen King, who said, who answered that same question. Stephen King said, perhaps we invent these artificial terrors to help us cope with the real ones, which I thought was just a really thought-provoking statement to make. It, it, it made me think like, huh, is that a viable, <laughs> I don't know. Have yeah, you that, seen this terror in the aisles or have you heard that quote before? No, I haven't, but that's really good. I, I really like that. That's, um, that's not unusual to think. It's not, it's not far-fetched to think that that is just a coping mechanism for the real world. It actually reminded me of, uh, of, of, I can't remember what I was watching, but it had Anthony Hopkins on it. Sir Anthony Hopkins. They were asking, they were talking to him, talking to him about Hannibal and why people want to go and see these movies and be terrified. And and then Anthony Hopkins, in a similar manner, looked at the camera and said, "What's the first thing you say to a baby?" Boo. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. No, no, we love to be scared. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that was really interesting. I've I've never forgotten that. Wow, that's stunned me into silence. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we raise our kids to be very careful of strange. We were talking about this the other night with stranger danger. You know, don't talk to strangers. You know, don't get into their cars. Don't eat their candy. Unless it's Halloween. Unless it was Halloween. Then (laughs) Then all of a sudden it was okay. (laughs) It's okay to take candy from strangers. It reminds me of like, uh, I I used to, I haven't listened to them for a while. There's another podcast that I I used to listen to called Spirits and they, and they talk about folklore and stuff like that and urban legends and myths and mythology. It's really cool, but they dive into like these old tales, like, um, um, like the boogeyman and stuff like that. And that these stories were probably invented to keep your kids safe. So they don't wander off into a forest and they don't like go off with like red riding hood and stuff like that. They don't, um, so they don't stay out at night. Like there's stories about there's a boogeyman and and uh, they have various names through various cultures. And if you're out past a certain time at night, then you're at risk. So it's just, they they sort of surmise that these, prob- these stories probably just exist just to control the children, <laughs> to keep them scared, scared enough to behave themselves, I suppose. Well, Stephen King said when he was asked what scares him the most, he was told, okay, you've written all these books, yada, yada, yada what is it that scares you the most? And his response was something that I think a lot of people would say. He said his biggest fear was something terrible happening to his kids. And so many of his stories, and what do you have? You have endangered kids, or you have parents being killed, or you have kids being killed. I mean, take a look at it. You know, take a look at Pet Cemetery. Take a look at The Shining. Take a look at Carrie. Take a look at Cujo, Firestarter. They all reflect that primal fear of his yeah, it um it is a recurring theme, and as you say, that there's a reason behind it. It's just the same as the recurring themes throughout these these monster films. It's uh, humanity, and it's 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 our fears, yeah, which is pretty crazy to think about. And you think about these werewolf movies, or vampire movies, or any kind of subgenre in horror, and they all seem to know exactly how to, or at least they try to. They all seem to know how to try to really strike a raw nerve in their audiences. Obviously not every horror movie works, so I shouldn't say that that's what they all do, but they all try to do that at least. They all want to have that impact. You know, Horror mm. movies are meant to scare. They're meant to terrorize. They're meant to, to haunt. They're meant to unnerve their audiences yeah. if they are truly horror movies. I mean, American Werewolf in London does have a lot of black comedy woven throughout, which I totally love. But when it comes down to it, 
it's a pretty downbeat ending. It's a pretty horrific journey getting to that ending. I mean, you yeah. really feel for David Martin's character. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, if you strip out the 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 jokes and the those comedy elements, it, it's a tragic story. It's so so terrible. And there was one scene when I was rewatching it, I never noticed this before. And I don't know if I'm reading too deeply into it, but there was a scene when the nurse, Jenny Agata, when she takes him home to her apartment and they spend the evening together, they're showering together. At one point, she's leaning into him and she's nibbling at his shoulder. And I don't know if that, like I said, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I didn't know if that was just meant to be just a something titillating, like a visual cheap thrill, or if it was meant to be something subtle. Oh, wait a minute. Is she, you know, sort of symbolically, or is this visual foreshadowing? Is she bearing her teeth against him? Which I don't know. I mean, she's not the one who's the werewolf, so I don't know. But yeah, still, that, that's I, interesting. I, I crossed my mind, and I was like, "That's interesting that they would do yeah. that." Yeah, it's a yeah. It's that was very good to pick up on that actually. Um, yeah, it, I found that whole shower scene a bit awkward, but uh, but yeah, that's a good point. Is um, is is that a bit of foreshadowing? Well, I'll tell you what's awkward is that when he went to the premiere, he brought both of his parents with him. Oh, did he? <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I like to think that there was something to the nibbling on his shoulder beyond mm. just, you know, yeah. hey, here's a kinky moment. I like to think that there was something pertaining to the story that might have been, you know, suggested subtly. Yeah. Like I said, maybe it wasn't, but it's fun to think about. Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, one more note that I made, I, I should have actually said it before when you asked me when I first watched it, is um, it wasn't till actually watching it this, when I actually watched The Wolfman, 1941, that I had seen scenes of it in one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, The Sandlot. And uh, I had no idea what this film was, um, but I'd seen this scene so many times. And then when I was watching the movie, there it is. <laughs> There's this <laughs> iconic scene from uh, from The Sandlot. It's, um yeah, when, when they were in a cinema. So cool, so cool, so familiar. Well, if it's okay with you, I wouldn't mind saying if you are listening and you want to check out any particular episode of R3, they did one on the Sandlot. Yeah, it was one of my favorite episodes. I love that movie so much. I'd never seen it before, and it was because of that episode that I finally watched it, finally got around to it. Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad you did. I hope you enjoyed it. I did, I did. It was, it was fun to watch. Yeah. It really was. Now, Tommy and I agreed ahead of time to share the research duties to come up with the fun facts for these two flicks. So I'm going to let him go first, and then I'll throw in a couple. Tommy, what do you got? Wolfman. I found out that uh, many of the modern werewolf lore actually comes from that film, such as uh, being infected from being bitten by a werewolf that, uh, that originated here, as well as an aversion to silver and, and like, like silver bullet, bullets and a silver cane. Uh, that Lon Chaney Jr. has in the film. And the association with the pentagram came from this film as well. Yeah, none of that lore existed within werewolves before that. So that's pretty cool because that is that is what we associate with werewolves these days. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah a werewolf, you need a silver bullet. It's no brainer. So I thought that was really interesting to hear that. And, and, and that must be quite an accomplishment as a writer as well to have have just written this story, this film, and put these elements into this. Because, uh, I mean, werewolves 
the legends of werewolves existed before this but to be putting in these new this new law and then have that become common practice like that that's commonly associated with werewolves now that must be quite quite cool to know that that's a stamp you put on that mythology that must be a really gratifying feeling to know that you something that came from your mind yeah is now a permanent fixture in the pop cultural zeitgeist of the whole of the whole subgenre yeah what a legacy to have left you put this stamp on this big mythology which is which is still ingrained in pop culture today it's so cool. Oh, you can't think of the werewolf legend without thinking of any of those elements now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and oh, I mentioned I, I mentioned it before, and I realized that um, that it was in the trivia. Um, was that originally the the story was supposed to be more ambiguous um, as to whether Larry Talbot was actually transforming into a wolf or whether it was all happening in his own head, and and that's yeah depicted so well those elements that were left in the story um as i mentioned before with just that uh the distress and uh and and that that larry talbot was going through is just um yeah so so incredible and that's uh that's why they had um and we haven't even talked about (laughs) that's actually my next one is that um bella lugosi campaigned for the lead in the in the Wolfman, but later took a smaller role of of Baylor, the fortune teller, who was the original wolf who bit Larry Talbot. Uh, and they made the decision to leave him as a as a quadruped <laughs> wolf in that in, in that incident. Just that was an element from whether or not because because if if that had been a wolf, if he if if Baylor had transformed into a Wolfman, then we would have known that oh yeah, he's a werewolf. But it's the element of um, whether it was all happening in his head because it wasn't a werewolf. It was just a wolf that we saw. So I don't know if that made any sense, but um, that's, um, yeah, that's something that I found really interesting as to why they wanted to go with a wolf initially. So, yeah, I don't quite understand why Baylor's uh, werewolf form was a quadruped as opposed to a biped, which is what Larry takes on. And that is interesting, especially, I know you just said that you haven't seen Dracula yet, but there is yeah. one scene in Dracula where as the vampire, he leaves the room, he vanishes, he goes outside. And then you have the unsuspecting would-be victim looking out the window saying, I don't see him anywhere. All I see is a big dog running across the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole idea yeah. of a vampire turning into a werewolf as he's running across the front lawn of whatever house he's escaping from. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite cool. Evelyn Ankers was tormented by Lon Chaney Jr. on set. He would often scare her while dressed up in the Wolfman makeup. And people suspect that Lon Chaney Jr. was um, a bit aggravated towards Evelyn Ankers because they gave her his dressing room after he um, reportedly got drunk and destroyed studio property. Yeah, a a, a fair punishment, I feel. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, and number five, while silver bullets are mentioned a number of times in the film, they are not used until House of Frankenstein 1944, which I haven't seen. So I haven't had a lot of experience with uh, the Universal monster films, but Bela Lugosi was in a lot of them, right? He when he was he was Dracula and then he also wanted to be the Wolfman. Like, yeah. is, he's, he's trying to capitalize on being every monster. Is that is that what he was up to? Pretty much. Um, I mean, he originated the role of Dracula on the Broadway stage in the late 20s. And, right. and when they were putting the film version together, he was not first choice. 
they wanted Lon Chaney, not Lon Chaney Jr., but his father, yeah. Lon Chaney. And Lon Chaney was going to play the role, but unfortunately for him, he became ill and died before the production began. Right. So then they set their sights on choice number two. That didn't work out. Choice number three, that didn't work out. Lugosi was choice number four. Wow. It was sort of a bit of an insult to him. You know, I created the role on stage and the whole thing. Like, I own this character. Like, not I own, but, you know, I feel connected to this character. You know, I am the person. I am this character. I mean, he played it. It's not like he walked away saying, hell with it, screw you. He took it and it was a hit. And then they actually were considering having him play Frankenstein's monster. Mm. He would have been Frankenstein's monster. And they actually went so far as to do a couple of screen tests and costume and wardrobe photo shoots and that kind of thing. And it was, there are several different versions of what exactly happened. If you take a look at the 1994 movie, Ed Wood, the ghost in that movie says, I turned, a, I turned the role down because I didn't think it was sexy enough for me. I wouldn't have had any speaking lines. And was that the truth? Yeah. Some say that it was more of a mutual decision. Was that the truth? Some say it was a matter of money. Some say it was a matter of the character itself, the character of Frankenstein's creature not being as suave and sophisticated as Dracula, something that would have been a step down for him. I mean, who knows what the actual reason was, but once he did not play Frankenstein's creature, Frankenstein became a huge hit. Boris Karloff was now the new kid in town (laughs) and pretty much overshadowed Bela Lugosi. But then he, Bela Lugosi, went on to co-star as Igor in Son of Frankenstein. Oh, really? The third Frankenstein movie. Wow. And then he, as you said, he wanted to be the Wolfman. <laughs> that didn't work out. He has a smaller role. An important role, but a smaller role. He was actually, he requested to be buried in his Dracula cave. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Fair enough, too. Yeah, Wow. This is all great stuff. I don't want to add too much to it and take away from everything you brought to the table. I'm just going to add that Universal Studios planned a December 1941 release, and then Pearl Harbor happened. So the studio thought twice about the premiere date. Universal worried that audiences wouldn't find the Wolfman or any monster picture, for that matter, the least bit frightening. And, of course, the country had just been propelled into World War II, so why would anybody be scared of a horror movie? But they stuck to the original plan, and they previewed it on December 9th. It opened nationwide three days later, and understandably, some critics did feel that given recent events, the studio's decision to unveil a new creature feature was in pretty poor taste. Variety's review of The Wolfman called it, quote, dubious entertainment at this time, end quote. And yet, the movie turned into a monster hit, grossing a then-spectacular $1 million domestically. Now on to an American werewolf in London. So I have that David and Jack kept their puffer jackets that they wore on set in their opening scene when they're in the uh, in the back of the sheep truck. That's the prop that they took home from from the set, which is very cool. I quite like um, the idea of, of looking at a movie and thinking which prop you'd like to take home. Yeah, that, that's quite interesting. an interesting choice that they chose their jackets. Those were great jackets, though. I remember when those jackets were, I remember when those yeah. jackets were the in thing in the 80s. And Back to the Future. Yeah, Ivan Fly is wearing one. They keep telling him it's a life preserver. It's <laughs> like that recurring joke. Like <laughs> <laughs> Next one is about Frank Oz, who makes two appearances in this film. Uh, one as the American ambassador. And I didn't realize it was Frank Oz until I looked it up later because I made a note about this character. And I didn't recognize... 1981 Frank Oz 
is I thought he just looks like David Cross. Um, but he makes two appearances in the film. One is the ambassador, and then later again as Miss Piggy on the TV, because obviously <laughs> Frank Frank Oz provided the voice for Miss Piggy. And Yoda, of course, more famously. Um, all the songs in the soundtrack contain the word moon, which I thought was a nice touch. As, uh, it That's certainly cool. fits with the theme. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Number four, an interesting one, is that they had uh, John Landis had to be careful when filming David Norton nude as to not capture him front on um, because his character is Jewish and is circumcised and David Norton is not. <laughs> and that would have been terrible continuity. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that would have taken some time in the editing room. Well, obviously, it's interesting. He didn't go to Rick Baker and ask him to uh, make him a prosthetic foreskin or something <laughs> to wear. Hooray <laughs> for Hollywood. It, it um um, and number five, we're going to get off that one. Uh, there is a message after the credits congratulating Prince Charles and Princess Diana on their wedding to make up for the defam- defamatory remarks that David made about Prince Charles while trying to get arrested uh, and oh, put in yes. jail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he called Prince Charles a word that I do not care to repeat. But um, yeah, so that was a little um, a little thing that they put on the end of the credits just to uh, make up for that. Glad they did that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, well, that's that's my 10. And I just want to throw one more fact out there. Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson called Landis personally to tell him how much he loved an American werewolf in London. And he asked Landis to work with him and with special effects master Rick Baker. And the result was the music video for Thriller. Ready for the trivia? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. No, no, let's alternate, eh? Okay. Um, we'll, and we'll go back to the Wolfman, if you're happy with that. Sounds good. Let's take it away. Cool. Uh, so the wolf that Larry Talbot fights, um, which is Bela Lugosi, is played by a German shepherd in the film. Do you know who the German shepherd belonged to? This I do know. Was it Lon Chaney Jr.'s German shepherd? It, yeah, yeah. And, and what that that's perfect, though, right? He just got to play with his dog on camera and make it look like they were fighting. It was brilliant. You know, getting paid to play with your dog, what could be better? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, that makes sense, right? You know, that way you don't have to train um, with a new dog. You've already got a relationship with the dog that you're going to be on screen with. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. The rapport is there and the trust is there. and Yeah. Right. What do you got for me? All right. So the first question I have for you, also from The Wolfman, what was the original working title for the film? And I can give you a hint. It was also the working title for the 1943 movie that would eventually become Son of Dracula, starring Lon Chaney Jr. as Dracula. Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, oh, no, that doesn't make any sense. I was like, Son of Wolfman? No, that doesn't make sense. Like, what, what was it? It was Destiny. Destiny. Destiny was the original working title for the Wolfman. And then after it became the Wolfman, they hung on to that working title. Yeah. And ended up never using it because Son of Dracula became Son of Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Number two that I've got for you also for the Wolfman is uh, what was the name of the observatory that Larry worked on while he was uh, working for an optics company? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's in California. Oh, he spent 18 years in California. 
He did. Away from his father, away from his family. Skylab? No, it was Mount <laughs> Wilson. The Mount Wilson Observatory. And I don't know if that's fictional. So I may have set you up completely. <laughs> Is that a real observatory? I have no idea. Yeah, okay. I, have no I may idea. have set you up. That could be a fictional observatory that you would never going to be able to get. The next one I have for you, again from the Wolfman. Claude Rains plays Talbot Sr., Larry's father. In what early 1930s Universal Studios horror classic does Claude Rains star? I saw this. No, I saw this. It's, um, oh, maybe I didn't. Maybe I'm making it up in my head. Phantom of the Opera? The Invisible Man. Oh, The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man. Claude Rains was was the original Invisible Man. Was he? Right. Okay. On Claude Rains, right. His height difference between him and him and uh, Lon Chaney Jr. was was incredible for a father and son. However, I must say there was never a doubt in my mind that Claude Rains was the alpha in that situation. <laughs> like he he dominated those scenes. Like like he is he's a small man, but he he makes up with it in his presence. Yeah, he was fantastic. Did you have another one for the Wolfman? Uh, the next one I have for you is actually from an American werewolf in London. Okay. Do you still have Wolfman ones? I've got two more. Let's do those then. Okay, cool. So Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi would star together again in 1943 uh, with Lon Chaney Jr. reprising his role as the Wolfman. But who does Bella Lugosi play? Lon Chaney Jr. reprises his role as the Wolfman and Bela Lugosi plays... Uh, <laughs> I've intentionally I've intentionally omitted the title of the movie because <laughs> I didn't, thought it would be too easy. The Wolfman Returns. <laughs> the Return of the Wolfman. I'm not going to get it. Okay. I don't know. Uh, Bela Lugosi plays Frankenstein's monster. And oh! The the film is Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Oh my God. I cannot believe that. I did not get that. <laughs> you, can, you can cut in yourself giving the correct answer if you want. <laughs> oh, hell no. No, 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 no. This is an authentic podcast. I'm not going to yeah. be <laughs> tweaking anything in my favor. That's not, uh, that's not the way I roll. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you mentioned it before that, that um, Bella Lugosi would, would eventually play Frankenstein's monster, but um, you didn't, you didn't name the movie. And I'm like, I wonder if you know, if it's the same, it's the same one. Right, and number four, we've got the poem from from The Wolfman, uh, which I recited earlier. Do you know how many times that poem is recited in the film? I'm going to go with three. It is three. It is three. I've got a part B question for this. Um, A revised version of that poem appears in a 2004 film. Do you know which film that is? Van Helsing. Correct. You nailed it. All right. Now that is all for the Wolfman. I've got some more for America. I've got three for American Werewolf in London. Bring it on. Okay. Do you want me to go first on this one? Yep. Yep. Go ahead. Cool. An American Werewolf in London was filmed mostly in sequence. Do you know what the first thing they filmed was? Yes. The, (laughs) how shall we say, the uh, 
the porno that's yeah. playing in the uh, the fake porno that's playing in the movie theater that he goes inside when he's meeting all the specters yeah. of all of his victims. Yeah, see you next Wednesday. Was that that's the, right? That's right. The fake the fake porno movie. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Right. What have you got for me? Okay, so what I have here from the American Werewolf in London. What was the name of the inn that David and Jack go into at the beginning of the movie? That was going to be one of my questions for you. Uh, oh. It is called the slaughter, the slaughtered lamb. The slaughtered lamb, it is. Yes. Yeah. Have you been to You've been to the UK. I've been to the UK. I have not been to the slaughtered lamb, but I've been to the you've UK. Been, yeah, yeah. They they have they have some fantastic names for their um for their for their pubs for their for their bars over there. Where Shannon Shannon I Shannon and I got married uh, in the South Island of New Zealand at a property that uh, belonged to her boss and he had built himself a little English pub on his property. And uh, that's where we held our reception. It was so cool. It was so fantastic. And uh, the name of the pub of his pub was called the bike and bovine. And it had a little picture of a cow riding a bike. And it was, it was perfect, but yeah, they have some fantastic names for for bars over there. Yeah. I definitely paid attention to the slaughtered lamb. (laughs) Was it your, it was your, that was the last question that I had. Oh, right. No, that was, you asked me. That's right. Um, David wears a rare puffer jacket and Jack wears a green. Do you know why they chose red for David? I'm going to guess it had something to do with the color of blood. Uh, not, not exactly. Not exactly. David's is a red puffer jacket as a nod to Red Riding Hood. Another werewolf story. Oh, that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because unless I missed something growing up, I never knew that the wolf in Red Riding Hood was supposed to be a werewolf. No, neither. It's um, but I've heard it referred to. Yeah, that's 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 one of the original werewolf stories, which is, is which is so crazy. Weird. I was yeah. taking a look at one of the bonus features on the DVD to prepare for this, and they mentioned that, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute, what? Obviously, it just goes to show how much that story has changed over time. By the time I heard it, it's a, it's a wolf. But I imagine, I imagine what that suggests is that the original or one of the original iterations of that tale was a werewolf. Um, I've got a final one. So I mentioned the songs all contain the word moon in them. Um, there was a song that John Landis wanted for the movie, but he wasn't able to get it. Do you know what song it was? Oh, Okay, so the movie does have Bad Moon Rising. It has Blue Moon. It has Moonlight. I'm I'm sorry, Moon Dance. Moon Dance. Moonlight Sonata. No, Moonlight Sonata would have been public domain, right? It's not Moonlight Sonata. So, uh, I don't know. The song was Moon Shadow by Cat Stevens. Oh, okay. I wouldn't have gotten that. <laughs> and and Cat Ste- I'm not, yeah, Cat Stevens wouldn't let them because um apparently I've heard a couple of reasons why. The first reason that I read was that Cat Stevens didn't want it because of the amount of violence in the movie. And then I also heard that Cat Stevens wouldn't allow it because he believes werewolves are real and didn't want to get involved in anything like that. I'm not sure which is real. I can equally believe both. They're both, both good very, reasons. <laughs> both very good reasons, yeah. Did you did you know? I'm just jumping back to the Wolfman. Did you know about the bear scene that they had originally planned for the Wolfman, and they'd had shot some of it? No, tell me about that. So they had um, they had a bear 
they were going to have the Wolfman fight a bear. And so they had a bear and they had filmed some of it, but the bear got loose and it actually chased, um, oh, I can't remember what her name was, um, Evelyn Anchors. It chased her. She had to climb um, one of the, like part of the, the lighting rig or something like that to get away from this bear that had gotten loose. And, and yeah, it just, it, it escaped. And that was the end of it. And it really concerns me that's where the trivia ended is that the bear escaped and that's all. <laughs> Like they didn't, there's no, nothing in there about them recovering it, what they had to do to get it back. So I'm really concerned that there's just a bear escaped and that's far too casual for me. But it also made me think that there was for, for a time that there, there was a movie star bear just strutting around the, <laughs> strutting around the forest of where did they film this? Cali- uh, I'm not sure where they filmed this. They filmed this in California. I think so. Yeah. Just picture <laughs> walking around this movie set saying, I want my own dressing room. <laughs> I'm a bear, damn it. Um, another thing, so jumping back to another note I had about the Wolfman was um, I was very concerned about Larry's understanding that no means no when he goes and meets um, the woman he was spying on through his telescope. Yep. Oh, that's what I meant earlier when I said yeah. some dated and cringy ways of trying to make a date. Yeah, yeah. She was, um, <laughs> she, she, she said no a lot and he didn't hear a single one of them. <laughs> And yeah. then she finally gives in. She gives yeah. in. She says, fine. And then she calls a friend over and says, we have a third wheel. Like, it yeah, not. we've got a chaperone. And then she, and then she gets murdered. And then the poor friend who's doing Evelyn a favor. She ends up paying with her life. Oh, what a raw deal. Yeah, definitely is. Definitely is. It was very weird. Like the fact that he was just happily spying on her through this telescope. And, was, and he um, tells her. That he watched yeah. her through a telescope. Yeah. <laughs> he, t- yeah. he comes out and he tells her this. And her reaction is, oh, is that how you do it? Oh, okay. <laughs> the hell you yeah. say. She suggests that she will um, close her blinds um, going forward. <laughs> <laughs> so that ought to do it. Thanks, Evelyn. <laughs> mm. uh, it was uh, 80 years ago. So, yeah. Well, like like what your show is, rewatch, relive. <laughs> yeah. Repeat what has aged yeah. well, what hasn't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it, but I think it's a good thing that we notice these things now and, and that I don't think that would be perfectly normal to happen um, for a man to walk into a shop and say, oh, I was spying on you from my telescope at my house. In your bedroom. Um, yeah, um, let's go on a date. <laughs> <laughs> and not take no for an answer yeah, three exactly. times in the span of three minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, there's trivia for anyone who's listening to this. And like I always say, it does not matter when you send in your answer. If you're listening and it's Valentine's Day, if it's New Year's, if it's the summertime, if you're listening to episodes out of order, it doesn't matter. Just answer whichever question you want whenever you feel compelled to. You will get a personalized meme and a shout out in the following episode. And here it is. Lon Chaney Jr., he plays Larry Talbot, the Wolfman. He also had a featured role in a 1952 Oscar-winning movie starring Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly. And on the surface, this movie may appear to be a western, but there's more to it than that. Name this movie, and I will give you a hint. I covered it in a previous episode of this podcast. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments... Thoughts of your own that you want to share in either of these films, or any werewolf movies for that matter? If you're a fan, if you're not familiar with them, but you're now intrigued, whatever your thoughts are, hit me up on the socials for this podcast, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, FrankMendoza1974 on Instagram, or you can simply email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. 
As for last week's question, we looked at the 90th anniversary of Dracula and Frankenstein. And your trivia question then was, which Oscar-winning actor plays Count Dracula in the 1992 version of the story directed by Francis Ford Coppola? And the correct answer is... Gary Oldman, and retaining her spot on the podium with the prize-winning meme is none other than Mary C. Mary, you are doing the movie gods proud week after week. Thank you. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for playing. And joining Mary on the podium once again, we have Alicia W. Alicia, you two keep knocking them dead, no pun intended. Congratulations to you as well. And JC, great to hear from you again. You also guessed Gary Oldman and have a meme coming your way as well. And thank you to all of you listeners who voted in the poll. The poll asked, if you had to be one, would you rather be a vampire every night or a werewolf just once a month? Gail R. very wisely says, neither, I'd rather just watch them in the movies. <laughs> Something tells me that you're in good company, Gail. Mary C. says, I've been to London ten times, so the choice is obvious. So I'm inferring, Mary, that you'd rather be a werewolf in London? And over on Twitter, the majority of the vote actually went to being a vampire, with there also being a request to be both. That would be a sight to behold. Thank you to all of you for your feedback, your thoughts, your senses of humor, your contributions. Tommy, I do, of course, want to yield the floor to you to give you the chance to say whatever it is, however much you want to say about your own show. So, Tommy, please tell us all about your show. Feel free to throw out there your social information for people to find you. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just happy to be here uh, without without. Um, promoting our podcast but i've got a fantastic podcast with uh my i just described my podcast as being fantastic i've got a podcast it with is, my though. wife i've got a podcast with my wife uh where we re we're currently re-watching movies that we watched when we were when we were young so we're, we're sort of diving into the 80s and 90s we haven't crossed into the 2000s yet um we we know it's inevitable inevitably going to happen but we're sort of putting it off as as much as we can to try and keep in the in the 80s and 90s and and uh and yeah we sort of we're re-watching movies through a modern lens so we're just sort of seeing how they look today and uh yeah it's it's really fun it's really fun and exciting thing to do if you want to give us a listen or a follow on all our socials instagram twitter facebook and tiktok uh we are at r3 podcast nz r3 because rewatch, relive, repeat, the three hours, the other three hours. And yeah, so yeah, if you want to check us out, we'd love to, would love to have you listen if it's something you're interested in. Uh, definitely give a listen because this is a show that will make you see these movies that you thought you knew in a completely different way. What we do is we do a, we sit down and we have a chat about what we remember about a movie and then we, go and watch it and then we come back and talk about it so it's quite cool and and the idea is what we like to think um, might happen is that people will go and watch re-watch the movie as well and then come back and listen and you know because you you do you fall in love with these movies and and yeah we do we do call out a few things that aren't sort of appropriate anymore like Greece was a big one a lot of behavior that happened in the movie Greece was right, uh right Terrible. But yeah, while still trying to um, honor that nostalgia that we have for the movies as well. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Tommy, thank you once again. No, and I want to thank you. This is my this is my first time guest appearing on another podcast, and I was very nervous, very excited to be here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for taking the time out of your Saturday. 
No, I'm on, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I I love listening to your podcast. I always get something from it, a fresh perspective. We talk most days about movies and I absolutely love that. That's so cool. There's movies that I've seen now from just from our conversations. And that wraps up today's show on the archetype of the werewolf, as portrayed by Lon Chaney Jr., 80 years worth of Full Moons Ago, and David Naughton, 40. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and if you could take a second to give this show a rating on Apple, iTunes, Podchaser, Good Pods, wherever you listen to your podcasts, that helps with the algorithms so that more people can find this show. And if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be great as well. Thank you for joining. Tommy, thank you once again. Rock on, and as always, I'm Frank, and until next time, keep on screening. And remember, watch your back if you are walking through a desolate area where there is a full hunk of cheese in the sky. You never know when you'll need that wolfsbane if you want your humanity to remain fully intact.